0: Go. Welcome back, my friends, to the podcast that never ends. We're so glad you could ascend. Come ascend. <laughs> you wanna climb up? You wanna ascend? Come inside, come inside.
1: Uh I am Paul Spice. <laughs> but you can call him Joe. All right. And I'm Mike. Uh yeah.
0: And uh, my flick of the week is gonna be the Cohen Brothers two thousand nine film A Serious Man, starring uh, Michael Stollgard.
1: A serious man? Yes. Okay, go.
0: What the fuck is that? I don't
1: know. All right. So, in a
0: prologue, a Jewish man in an unnamed 19th century Eastern European shteti tells his wife that he was helped on his way home by Reb Groshkover, whom he has invited in for soup. She says Groshkover is dead, and the man he invited must be a dibbik, which is like a doppelganger. It's like a spirit that, you know, was crying for help. Uh, Groschkriver arrives and laughs off the accusation, but she plunges an ice pick into his chest. Bleeding, he exits hurt their home into the snowy night. Now it cuts to 1967. Uh, In um, in that year, Larry Gopnik is a professor of physics living in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. His wife, Judith, tells him that she needs needs a get. You know what? Fuck that. Let me talk about the beginning part first. (laughs) The beginning part, that ain't me. I don't know what the hell that is. Uh, <laughs> the aliens are coming. Um, uh, Get is a divorce settlement, yeah, by the way. Yeah, it is. Um, so the whole beginning sequence, um, it like, if it has any foreboding to the tone of this film, maybe. But otherwise, I can't tell what the fuck the beginning of this movie has to do with anything else uh, because none of the characters are connected to any of the characters in the film that I'm aware of. And just the, the whole weird, but it, it's still intriguing as fuck. Because when you're watching it, you know you're like, what the fuck? Is, you know, this the, the guy's got this ugly wife, you know, with that fucking the the visible mustache, you know, and right. and uh, and she's like dead serious about this guy being a fucking divic. And and the guy comes in, he's all jovial and shit, you know, he's in a good mood. And then she's like, you're a fucking Dibbic, And he's like, no, no, there's just a misunderstanding and stuff. And then when she plunges the fucking ice pick into his chest. I mean, he's like, you know what, maybe I've worn out my welcome. But first he starts laughing like crazy, like, like, ha ha, you got to me, you know, kind of thing. And and you're just like, what the fuck? But it's so well done that you're like, you're just glued to the scene. Like, where the fuck is this leading to? And so the dude gets up and he just walks out into the snowy night and that's it. That's the end of it. And you're like, what? what? Okay. God damn it, Cohen's. So, yeah. So then, yeah. He just
1: walks off into the snowy night. Yeah.
0: <laughs> All right. So, uh, Larry Gopnik, they, they cuts to fucking present day 1967, right? So, uh, Larry Gopnik is a professor of physics living in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. His wife, Judith, tells him that she needs a get so she can marry widower Cy Abelman, with whom she has fallen in love. Meanwhile, their son, Danny, owes $20 to an intimidating Hebrew school classmate for marijuana. He has the money, but it is hidden in a transistor radio that was confiscated by his teacher. Daughter Sarah is always washing her hair and going out. Larry's brother, Arthur, sleeps on the couch and spends his free time filling a notebook with what he calls a probability map of the universe. Uh, The brother's played by Richard Kind, if you know who that is. He's got a very big mouth.
1: Richard Kind is George Clooney's best friend. He also does a lot of... uh Voices for different cartoons. Yeah, yeah,
0: no, yeah. He's 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 a, he's a very funny actor.
1: Um, he was in um, he was in that Paul Reiser show. Oh, mad about you? Yeah, yeah. As as Paul Reiser's friend.
0: Yeah, and I like yeah. He did a voice for one of the um the goofy um uh, grasshopper in uh, Bugs Life. Correct. Yes. The annoying brother, right? So yeah, uh, Richard Kind. He's, yeah, he's in this and is fucking yeah. He's a he's an he's an oddball character. Um, so. This is one of those movies where, like, with this whole opening, like, sequence where you, you're introduced to Larry Gopnik, who's played by Michael Stolgar- Stolbarg. Um, Michael Stolberg was the, the, the undercover Russian scientist in um, um, the fish fucking movie. You know, uh, the name of the, what was it called? The, the holy shit. Fish Called Wanda? <laughs> Nemo? Um, oh, my God. The, the we just won Best Picture. We saw it. We wrote. A, I wrote a review for it. it was oh, uh, Guillermo del Toro movie. Yeah,
1: I'm blanking on it. The too. fish
0: of the sea. <laughs> the uh, <laughs> the fish under the sea dance.
1: Creature um, from the black lagoon, but not.
0: Yeah, um, the, the the sound of water, the color of water, the the fucking the shade of water. God damn it. <laughs> the shape. The shape of water. There we go. It was such a what, good movie. You know what's
1: funny is yeah. there's um to cut from this for a second. Yeah. So Oculus is burning up the air burning up the uh uh commercial airwaves as it were. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they are spamming their new VR helmet wow. where you can buy for like 199 bucks and you can like I can sit on my couch, you can sit on your couch, but we can be in this virtual world watching like sports and whatever else yeah. and interacting with each other. So if I turn to look at you, you can have your own avatar, I'd have my avatar, right? That's
0: And creepy at the same time, it is.
1: And one of the things is, uh, they had a person watching The Shape of Water in a bathtub, you know, (laughs) and she's like, I'm never getting out of this bathtub again, (laughs) which is creepy in and of itself,
0: yeah. (laughs) So, Michael Stolberg, he's a very good actor, he's very, um, he usually plays a very subdued character, um, and in this film, he is even more subdued, like, he just like all this shit just starts happening to him. And like, it's just the neck, what's the next thing? What's the next thing? What's the next thing? And he just keeps taking it and taking it. And, and he's like, and like, it gets to a point where he's just like, what the fuck is going on? To, you know? But anyway, so this scene where his wife sits him down and starts talking about how she wants to marry this widower who lives next door because she's fallen in love with him and that, you know, things have changed in, in their marriage. Um, she tells him in a way like that he should have known this from the get go he should have understood and he should right now already be accepting it even though she just broke the news to him and any kind of response he has he has a question about or anything she gets extremely defensive and makes him look like he's the asshole and I'm like I almost want to yell at my fucking TV screen that's how much it's pissing me off right so (laughs) so yeah so he's dealing with that he's dealing with his son you know who's, who's getting high all the time with his classmates and and he's going to Hebrew school and and uh and then his you know his daughter doesn't do anything except I mean literally in the movie his daughter only just fucking she just always washed her hair and bullies her the the, the his son. You know, she's always hitting him and saying, What the fuck? you know and, and just yeah, she's like um Stan's sister in uh in South Park, you know. Okay. Are you screaming my headgear? You know? Shut up, Stan. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> so as Randy's like, hey, Shaday. Yeah. How you doing, Shada? <laughs> All right.
0: <laughs> so Larry faces an impending vote on his application for tenure, and his department head lets slip that anonymous letters have urged the committee to deny him. Clive Park, a South Korean student worried about losing his scholarship, meets with Larry in his office to argue he should not fail the class. After he leaves, Larry finds an envelope stuffed with cash. When Larry attempts to return it, Clive's father threatens to sue Larry, either for defamation if Larry accuses Clive of bribery or for keeping the money if he does not give him a passing grade. So he's stuck in this fucking position where it's just like he's got this envelope full of money but no one, the, the no one wants to acknowledge that they gave it to him but yet they it's like why is it his fault that the kid fucking failed this test, you right. know what I mean? And he, so he's stuck in this position. And so he thinks that this guy, this father, this Korean father is the one who's sending um these note, these letters to the school about, you know, denying him tenure right and and just making it look like he's a bad person right and so um while, while the father's there the korean father's there confronting him in the driveway at his house um the uh, stolberg has his next door neighbor who's like this fucking guy who goes out hunting all the time with his kid and he's very uh very private okay and um when the korean dude's there at, on his property the neighbor walks up and looks right at Stolberg's character and goes, well, is there a problem here? Is he harassing you like because it's 1967, so I'm assuming this guy probably fought in the Korean War right and like so if he sees any Asian person he's just like, "What the fuck you know so um, it just creates a level of tension that's you know really weird um, so at the insistence of Judith and sy um, Cy is the guy that she's having an affair with, Larry and Arthur move into a nearby motel so Okay, yeah. Judy, Judith implies the couple's bank accounts... Empties. Empties the bank accounts, leaving Larry pennil- penniless. So he enlists the services of a divorce attorney. Larry learns Arthur faces charges of sol- solicitation and sodomy. His brother keeps getting arrested because he's doing, like, this gambling and stuff, and then they, they offhanded mention that, yeah.
1: So, Prostitutes.
0: Yeah. So um, <laughs> this is another scene that fucking pissed me off. So he meets... Cy and Judith at this, at this um, diner and they're sitting there. And of course, she sits next to Cy, right? Mm-hmm. Even though they're still living together and everything, she sits next to Cy so that they can explain to him that it's better for him if he just moves out of the house and into a hotel. right? And then, so Larry says, why don't you just fucking move out and live with Cy since you guys are going to get married? Oh, no, no, no. That would look bad. That wouldn't look good. That wouldn't look good for anybody. And then they look at him like, what's your fucking problem? get the fuck out of the house and go live in a hotel. Right. And him, he just doesn't want to deal with it. You know, he's still confused about, he's still in shock about the whole thing that's happening to him. So and I'm like, you're feeling for this guy. Like what the fuck is like, the whole world is like collapsing in on this guy, you know, but he's also at the same time, not standing up for himself really. Um, all right. So, so yeah, he moves into a hotel with his brother. Right. So Larry turns to his Jewish faith for consultation or consolation. Um, he con- he consults two rabbis but a synagogue's uh, senior rabbi, Marshak, is never available. He's like extremely fucking old, like 90s old. Right. Right. Um, the first a junior rabbi who's played by um uh how howard from the the you know uh, Big Bang. Yeah. All right. All right. So um where is that? I uh, I think you went to It's right here.
1: Simon Helberg.
0: Oh okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So by Simon Helberg and scroll back up.
1: I don't want to. Okay.
0: <laughs> Howard so, so 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 yeah the junior rabbi advises Larry to change his just to change his perspective on what's going on with him just change the way you look at it right so then the second the second rabbi he goes to and it's like different age levels right, right. so you have the young one who's in his 20s then you have the middle one who's like in his 40s or 50s and then you have this super old fuck so the guy in the middle he says um, he just tells Larry about this uh, this parable about a dentist, and it's a weird fucking story. And it goes into the visual of it, and it shows that the story where this guy, this guy who's a dentist, he has a um, a um, a Goyim or a, you know, a Goya or whatever come into his his uh, his you know his, his practice, right? And you know a Goya or whatever is a non Jewish person, right? So the, um, he has he's working on the guy's teeth. The guy has um, Yiddish. Um, writing on the inside of his teeth, inscribed in there, like fucking, like, like almost like um, uh, chiseled into his teeth or something, right?
1: That would be inscribed. Inscribed. Right? Okay. There we go. Yeah.
0: So, and it's really fucking weird, you know. And it doesn't make sense. And and the guy thinks it's like you know it's supposed to mean something and all this stuff. He so he, it spends like five minutes do, showing the story and then it cuts back to him telling you know finishing it and telling Larry and Larry's like what the fuck does that have to do with anything? And he, and then the guy just makes some comment, you know, like whatever, right? So it just it didn't make sense. It was weird. You know, like, because no one's understanding what he's going through. And so they just, instead of them, like, trying to really, really help him, they just go on what, you know, like, their own personal shit so they can just get out of the situation real quick and move on to something else. Right. Um, so then, and then this, weird, this weird moment, this weird coincidence, Larry and Cy, Cy's the guy that's having the affair with his wife, um, they're both involved in separate, simultaneous car crashes. Larry is unharmed, but Cy dies. At Judas' insistence, Larry... She wants Larry to pay for Cy's fucking funeral. So at the funeral, Cy is eulogized as a serious man. And it's fucked up because she wants him to pay for the fucking guy's funeral that was fucking his wife. Right. Right? And it's like, who the fuck are you? And everyone's making him look like he's the asshole for this, right? All right. So while her husband is away uh, away on business... Larry calls on his neighbor, Vivian Samsky. She's the next door neighbor. There's a scene earlier in the film where she's standing, or he's standing on the roof adjusting. He, there's a bunch of times in the movie where he's adjusting the fucking uh, antenna on top of the house. Uh-huh. And that's the only, like, like, his son will call him. He could be in the middle of this fucking ordeal, and his son will call to interrupt something and, like, say, like have the receptionist kind of say it's an emergency. And he'll go, What is it, son? What is it? And he goes, Yeah, um, F Troop isn't coming in on the TV, you know? And he's like, what? You know, like, who gives a shit? You know, he's like fucking dealing with life-ending stuff here. But his son, you know, got to fix F Troop, right? So anyway, he's on the roof one scene where, and he looks down to the neighbors and this chick that, you know, he goes over to Vivian, she's fucking new sunbathing, right? Right. And he just stares for a good, good minute or two, you know, and then he comes to his, you know, things and he walks away. But anyway, so you can tell that he's got a little bit of think thing for her because she's kind of hot. You know, she is hot. And uh, so um, he calls on her. He goes over there to see her while her husband's gone. Um, and she's been, you know, sunbathing naked. Uh, she introduces him to marijuana. They start smoking, you know, joints together. And it's the first time he's ever done it. And he... Um, and, you know, he's having a good time, and then, you know, just he gets interrupted by something that happens at home again. His son fucking interrupts because he wants him to adjust the goddamn F-troop. antenna. Yeah.
1: F-Troop is on. Yeah. Got to fix it. Yeah.
0: So, and he like, fucks up any any kind of moment he has to calm himself or feel better about his life right. gets always interrupted, right? And so, later on, he has a dream that he's having sex with her, but then uh, it just, it turns into a fucking other nightmare, and... and it's it just, you know, it like it went from like him fucking her to him fucking Sigh or something like that. It was really weird. Or no, Sigh starts like beating the shit out of him, and he grabs him and he goes, "You know, I'm fucking your wife, right?" Because <laughs> it's never said in the entire film that he's fucking his wife. It just says that she's gonna leave him for her, and right. the, you know. So, but you know, he probably is, right? So, um, <laughs> so, so, Larry's proud. Um, Larry's proud and moved by Danny's bar mitzvah. Um, this the,
1: the to, to explain to uh, the people that are listening. Um, he is literally reading this fucked up Wikipedia page. Yeah, and none of it makes sense. But that's how the because, Yeah, because it's not flowing from one into the other. Yeah, like you know, it turns into another nightmare. And then Larry is proud and moved by Danny's bar mitzvah, where it should actually say at Danny's bar mitzvah.
0: And you know, and look, and look. Um, that's the genius of the Cohen brothers is that the, sometimes their story, the, the storyline, the, the linear, or the, this just the, the, the path that this, the film takes is unpredictable. So the whole time you're on your fucking toes watching it.
1: Well, uh, yeah, but what I'm saying is that the person that wrote this stuff yeah. should have edited it better. Yeah.
0: And I, I'm Ron Burgundy. So I, you know, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm Ron Burgundy. So I end up reading it, you know, word for word. um, so Larry's proud and moved to um, when he's at Danny's Bar Mitzvah, you know, proud that his son is, you know, becoming a man, you know, right? Um, unaware that his son is under the influence of weed. He's high as fuck, <laughs> which is funny because his son starts freaking out mentally, like, well, you know, all this shit's happening on because he can't. He's supposed to sing. Um He's supposed to sing a song right, he's, he's and, supposed to do the, yeah. the Jewish rap and, and,
1: or whatever it is
0: yeah and he can't and he's like fuck it took him forever like he's got all these these rabbis and stuff standing around him, like showing him where to read from and all this stuff and you know finally he does uh, during the service, Judith apologizes to Larry for all the recent trouble and informs him that Cy respected him so much that he even wrote letters to the tenure committee, okay. He's the one that wrote all the fucking bad letters, right? So Danny meets with Marshak, A brief encounter in which Marshak only quotes Jefferson's airplane, "Somebody Love." Um, so yeah, Danny. Danny gets sent because he's in trouble for you know for um, getting caught. He go, He finally gets sent to the old man, and the old man. All the old man does is read back the lines from "Fucking Somebody Love," and then some of the names of the band members. And then he he has the radio and he hands it to you know he hands it back to Danny. And he says, "Good boy," because right. Danny has a um, he had an ear earbud piece for it, like one, just one ear for it, kind of thing. Uh, and that's it, kind of to show that the, 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 this 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 old ass rabbi has nothing to to give the world at all. He's just fucking done, you yeah. know. Uh, so Larry's department head compliments him on Danny's bar mitzvah and hints that he will receive tenure. Uh, the mail brings a three thousand dollar bill from Arthur's lawyer. And uh, Larry decides to change Clive's grade from F to a C- minus just to avoid all the bullshit, right? You know, the, the, the Korean kid. Right. Whereupon Larry's doctor calls, asking to see him immediately about the results of a chest x-ray. And Larry keeps saying, well, I'll, I'll come later. And he goes, no, dude, you need to come now, which pretty much indicates he's fucked. Something really bad's coming. Right? He goes, I can't tell you on the phone. Um, at the same moment, Danny's teacher struggles to open the emergency shelter as a massive tornado closes in on the school. And that's it. That's how the fucking movie ends, man. It's very um, ambiguous. You know, it's up to interpretation. Um, it's well done. It's intriguing. It's a Coen Brothers movie. It, they, you know, even when you don't understand it, you're still entertained by it. You know, and um, it, my son, my son Kendrick came in about, um, I'd say about a third to close to halfway halfway through the film. And he watched the whole thing with me. He didn't turn away from it, and he's like, "Dude, this." He goes, "This is a good movie." <laughs> he goes, he goes, he goes. I I wish I'd seen it from the beginning. Um, and it is, it is, it is a very good movie. Um, it was up for um, Oscar for Best Picture. Um, most of the cast is unknown to uh, Coen Brothers films. Like, there's I don't I can't recall really anybody that was in this film that you would normally see in a Coen Brothers movie. And You know, how they like they like to use a lot of regulars, and uh, I think they purposely had. Um, unknowns or roughly unknowns for the most part. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's, it's, I don't know if you're supposed to really get anything out of this movie other than just seeing what this fucking guy goes through. And it, it's, it's sad, but it's also because it's, it's Coen Brothers dark comedy style. Uh-huh. It's funny. It's fucking hilarious, dude. And, and so uh, it's on Netflix right now. I, I highly suggest you watch it, especially if you like dark comedies. Um, because yeah, it's a really good movie. All right, all right. So, um, all right. I got a little bit of trivia here for you. Uh, the Coen brothers stated that the opening scene was nothing more than a little short that they made up that they made up to get the audience in the proper mood, which it does, um, and that there is no meaning behind it. Which they could be lying, you know. You know, you never know, right? They could No, have, there's no meaning behind it. I, yeah, I mean, but it could also, though, in their minds, like they know, but they don't. They don't ever need to let anybody else know. No, there's no
1: meaning behind it. It's it's written right here. Um, the Cohens themselves stated that the germ of the story was a rabbi from their adolescence, a mysterious figure who had a private conversation with each student at the conclusion of their religious education. Ethan Cohen said it seemed appropriate to open the film with a Yiddish folklore tale or folktale, but as the brothers did not know any suitable ones, they wrote their own.
0: All right, right, next one. Uh, Red Owl was a real Midwest grocery store chain with several stores in the Twin Cities area, including Knollwood Plaza and St. Louis Park, about two miles south of of the Cohen family home. The Red Owl mentioned in the film is identified as being in Bloomington, suburb uh, some ways to the south of St. Louis Park. The significance of Rabbi Nochners. Anecdote is that Sussman's investigation of the teeth mystery takes him on a drive in the middle of the night that would have taken about an hour and a half round trip. Far enough to seem just a little obsessed, but not too much. The Red Owl sign used in an exterior scene in the movie was a genuine antique, which unfortunately was accidentally dropped and destroyed after filming. All right, um, No line gets a bigger laugh when the film plays in Minneapolis than when Larry's divorce lawyer is telling him, hire Ron Meshbesher. To represent him, Meshbesher is a real person, the most prominent criminal defense attorney in Minnesota for forty-some years. The guy, in the words of the other lawyers, thus, um, I mean, the guy. He's the guy, in the words of other lawyers. Uh, thus, Larry learns that Arthur is more trouble than he'd imagined. This is a slight anachronism, as Meshbesher's reputation was not yet established by nineteen sixty-seven. To make the significance of the recommendation more apparent to the contemporary and non-Minnesota viewers, the script inflates the amount of Mesh retainer a good bit from what it was in the late 60s. The scene was shot in the Minneapolis office of Mesh and Spence, and the address of the retainer envelope at the end of the movie is the actual address of the firm. (coughs) The voice of Dick Button, the the Columbia Record Club employee who harasses Larry on the phone, is supplied by actor Warren Keith. This is the second time he has appeared in a Coen Brothers film, playing a character heard only on the phone. He also supplies the voice of Riley Deffenbach, the GMAC finance officer who calls Jerry Lundegaard in Fargo. Huh. I got seven cars here, but no Vins. All right. uh, The tornado bearing down the town at the climax is a factual event. There was a tornado outbreak in southern Minnesota in 1967. And lastly the Cohen brothers' original idea for the picture was as a short film about Danny's stoned bar mitzvah and his meeting with Rabbi Marshak. All of the other content in the movie grew out of that sequence.
1: Hmm.
0: So, oh, yeah. Yeah. so yeah, um, like I once said, um, I, I highly recommend this movie. Um, I would probably give it, shit, I, I an, at least an eight out of ten. At least, an yeah, at least an eight. So, um, a serious man. Check it out. All right, uh, that's all we got. You got anything? Nope. You got any questions? Nope. Well, well, fuck you then. Fuck off. All All right. right. Bye.